if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even to the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourself. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some, having strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And Father, we just do want to lift before you all of the teenagers, Lord, the seven adults, all the other teenagers and adult leaders as well from these other youth group ministries as they finish their time at this weekend retreat. Lord, we just pray for just an outpouring of your spirit upon them, this younger generation, Lord, uh, that in these days, Lord, they may be the Daniels and the Esthers, the Jeremiahs, that, Lord, you would get a hold of their hearts that you would not allow the world to corrupt and to defile them, but that, Lord, you would set them ablaze as young people to be passionate and on fire for you, to walk in the power of your spirit and be useful and fruitful. So bless them, Lord. We pray that you would give them safe journeys back home. And Lord, we ask now as we open the word of God that you would open up our minds to comprehend these scriptures that is an act of worship, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, write your will onto the fleshly tablet of our hearts through this particular portion of the Word of God as we continue to survey all of it, and particularly this book of 1 Timothy as well. So speak, Lord, by your spirit, we ask expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I think as we look at this passage together this morning, three words, motives, contentment, and money— seem to be kind of the primary things that God addresses in our passage. Motives, of course, refer to the underlying reasons for why we do things. Contentment refers to that state or condition of being satisfied with how things are in our current state. And money, I'm not going to define it, I'll just say this, money is that thing that has way more influence over our lives than we often recognize or are willing to admit. And money and contentment and motives are the primary things we see in the midst of these verses, I think, being addressed this morning. Now, the last thing we saw at the end of verse 2 last time together that was stated was Paul, by the inspiration of the Spirit, had said to Timothy, teach and exhort these things. Now, what things? No doubt, as he's coming to the culmination of the letter, finishing up, he's kind of looking back over everything he's been stating so far in this letter of 1 Timothy, and he was just prompting Timothy once again, teach and exhort 
these things, in other words, all these things, back from the beginning of the letter, instruct people about these important matters that have been written about in this letter, all that it covers regarding how the church is to operate and to function. Command people, don't just teach them, but also command, exhort to observe these things, that is to put these things into practice. Because all of us know the reality is truth is only helpful if it's embraced and it's acted upon, right? We read in the book of Hebrews where it talks about the gospel message and it says some mixed together with the message of the gospel faith and it had an impact in their lives. Others who did not mix together faith, that is belief, embracing it, the gospel message has no value and impact in their lives. So again, we can hear truth, we can shake our head, or we can act that we say that we would agree, but unless we truly embrace and genuinely believe upon, act upon, and willingly embrace the truth we hear, it really does not benefit us in any way. Uh, whenever I meet with people for counseling, the majority of time, as it recollects in my mind, typically one of the last things I say before I know they're heading out the doors, I usually say, okay, here, you know what's going to happen from here? Two things. I say, one, we're going to pray together now, and we're going to ask God to help with everything that we've just kind of talked about or discussed regarding his word or the answers to what we discussed. And I say, and then the second thing that's going to happen is this. And I said, do you know what that is? And I always give them the opportunity to answer. And usually most, if it's their first time with me anyway, they don't know the answer. And then I say, here's the second thing that's going to happen. You're going to walk out the door, and then you're going to do whatever you want. Because what I can't do is put the word of God into practice or force somebody to obey the truth in the same way that God won't override our free will or cause us to do that either. So Paul here is saying to Timothy, Timothy, teach, instruct these things, but then exhort people, challenge them. The idea is charge or command them to embrace, to act upon these things, because that's what safeguards us from being a few things, misguided by error, whether it's by wrong influences that come into our lives, whether it's by bad teaching or theology that we may hear as it comes across our radar, or even just our own wrong desires, our own motives and inclinations that go on inside of us, those things can misguide us as well if we don't embrace the truth. Now, because false teachers were in that day and have always been a problem amongst the church, remember, as Paul opened the letter, the first thing that he honed in on was really charging Timothy with his assignment as he remained there as the pastoral leader of the church of Ephesus, and it seems providing oversight to help the other congregations in that area that sprung out of that church as well, to kind of man his post and hold the line regarding sound biblical doctrine and to hold the line regarding doctrine in order to counteract and resist false teachers and unhealthy spiritual workers that did exist amongst the churches. Paul said in chapter 1, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, Timothy, he said, You remain there in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. He said they desire to be teachers of the law but they don't understand either what they say nor the things which they are affirming. Now, it's at this point as we come to chapter 6, verse 3, that Paul seems to kind of now further identify some of the marks 
of these false teachers that he was concerned about, as well as some of these unhealthy spiritual workers that were kind of amongst the church collectively. If you look with me back in verse 3, that's what he's kind of addressing now, these false teachers and unhealthy spiritual workers. He says, if anyone teaches otherwise, in other words, other than sound doctrine, not consenting to wholesome words, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the doctrine which accords with godliness, Paul says he's proud, knowing nothing, obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, he says, from which come the result, envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings, which just speaks of constant friction and fighting, a men of corrupt minds desiring or destitute, excuse me, of the truth, who suppose, the underlying motive, that godliness is a means of gain for themselves. And he says, from such people withdraw yourself. So notice the things he says, first of all, in verse 3, that they're communicating, Paul identifies are wrong unhealthy and dangerous. He indicates in verse 3, look at it there, things to be on alert for. And the first thing he says is anyone who teaches otherwise, that is, other than that which is healthy, sound, New Testament doctrine according to the Scriptures. He says they don't consent, that is, they don't say things that agree with. They're not saying things that align with. First of all, he says, wholesome words. That word wholesome words is the same word that we get for sound doctrine. It speaks of healthy words. The idea is words that promote good spiritual health. That is what sound doctrine is. Sound, healthy doctrine are wholesome, healthy words that promote spiritual health in the lives of people. Teaching or beliefs, we might say, that align with and thereby produce good spiritual health in the lives of God's people. So if ideas, Paul says, that you hear from these teachers or these workers, if their ideas or things they're saying or promoting or teaching do not result in making people become more spiritually healthy, then Paul says that's an immediate red flag. If it's having a negative, unhealthy effect upon God's flock, where people are becoming more carnal and sinful, where people are behaving in ways where they're not becoming more healthy spiritually and growing and becoming more Christ-like, but instead other influences are happening in their lives, he says, beware. That's not a healthy worker or a spiritual teacher to be subscribing to what things they are saying or doing in their teaching or in their oversight, because instead of helping people become more healthy spiritually, they're actually doing the exact opposite. And some of that can just be measured by the fruit of what happens in our life, being under someone's influence, or the fruit of maybe a collective group of people or a congregation. Are they becoming more healthy spiritually or are we looking at our life or the life of our family, if we're a part of that ministry, or potentially the life of a congregation and going, that congregation seems to be getting pretty sick. And, and like things are getting really ugly and messy. And he says, that, that there's an indication something's wrong there. Uh, there's unwholesome words. What's being said and done is not healthy. He says, secondly, another red flag to indicate is if what they say doesn't consent or agree with, verse 3, look at it, he says, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they are saying things that directly contradict the teachings 
of our Lord Jesus himself that are found in the Gospels. In other words, their ideas, what they say, when they teach, or their beliefs directly contradict Scripture. They directly contradict the very teachings of Jesus who said things like, I am the way, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so then if someone says there is any other way or kind of gives the idea there is some other way to become right with God other than exclusively through the person of Jesus and trusting him and his finished work alone, then they aren't saying things that agree with the words of our Lord Jesus. Again, we know what Jesus taught. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four gospels give us much of our Lord's teaching. And if people are saying things or teaching things that don't align with Jesus' truths or principles or his promises, then that's a major red flag. If you're going to contradict Jesus himself, that's not a good thing. And he says, if you see that go on, they don't agree with the words of Jesus, the way they're leading or teaching. He says, that's very dangerous Steer clear of that. And then the third thing he mentions in verse 3 as well is if they're saying or teaching things that don't consent or agree with doctrine, which accords with godliness. In other words, leading a person to become more godly in how they live. So he says if their doctrine or their teaching, whether it's, listen, whether it's their style of teaching, whether it's the content that they're teaching, if the end result of that is not helping people listening to them to become more godly, then he says, that's not good. Because the whole purpose of the teaching of the word of God and spiritual leadership and giving to people sound doctrine is to help people to be spiritually healthy and to become more and more godly to grow in Christ and to become more of a godly person. And if he says, if the way someone is teaching, whether it's their style, is more entertaining and exciting people and, in a sense, conducting a pep rally more than it is actually you know, imparting spiritual help and truth and grace and guidance and, and feeding the flock of God with what they need to, to make it beyond Monday, then he says, something's wrong there. Or if the content that they're teaching is teaching in such a way where it's not helping people become more godly, or worse, God forbid, it's making people become ungodly because they're emulating the teacher or acting like their spiritual leader that's guiding people. He says, that's a real major red flag, and that's a horrible disservice to the body of Christ, Paul would say, because their whole goal was to help people to progress in godliness, Now, in verse 4, he then goes on to describe some of the underlying motives of these unhealthy spiritual workers and false teachers. He says, those who do such things, here's the problem, verse 4, he identifies, he says, are, first of all, proud. That is their arrogant attitude. That is, they would have, we might say, a superiority complex. They view themselves as special. They see themselves as important or superior and above others. He says, that's a problem. He also says, verse 4, they know nothing. Now, that being said, the problem is Paul's saying they actually are ignorant. They know nothing. So wait a minute. They can quote a lot of Bible verses, or perhaps the church at Ephesus would say, I mean, they're really interesting to listen to. And and Paul's saying, right. But the point is, they may know how to work a crowd, (laughs) They may be very impressive to listen to. Maybe they're a great order. Maybe they're very entertaining. But he says they don't know anything about what really matters. 
They don't know anything about God's heart and, and what really helps people to become healthy and to become more godly and to get sound doctrine fed into their life. And so he says, whether it looks like they know things and they can impress in their presentation, they really don't know what really matters because they're not helping people to become a healthier sheep. And that's what matters to the heart of the Lord. Jesus told Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. Feed them, nourish them, help them to become more healthy. And he says, such individuals they don't know anything really that matters, but look what he goes on to say, verse 4, such men also at times, he says, are obsessed, they have a weird obsession, with disputes and arguments over words. In other words, they have a strange obsession with proving themselves to always be right. They have this inclination to kind of like to debate, to always challenge to resist healthy, godly authority. There's just this weird obsession, he says, in this arrogancy in their nature that, that they just, their main concern is, is I am always going to be right, and don't you ever challenge that. And they're willing to debate and argue over petty things like, you know, words and insignificant things. He says they're just obsessed with such. And look at the end result of that. He says, verse 4, from which come, here's the end result of these kind of people who are ministering, from which come envy, strife, just anger, conflict, strife and, and divided relationships, reviling, saying nasty things amongst people, evil suspicions, that is a spirit where everybody's always suspicious, they never feel comfortable. Something's weird, something, and there's always this kind of questioning and a suspicious kind of attitude all the time. Everybody's kind of unsettled. They're always suspicious and worrying and wondering. Useless wranglings, which speaks of, you know, worthless, constant friction. So in other words, what he's saying is this is the fruit that's the end result of these unhealthy workers or false teachers as they cause people among the church, what he describes there is to be things like angry and agitated and always questioning everything, fighting with one another, never settled. In other words, the atmosphere they create among the family of God by their ministry influence it's the exact opposite of love and humility and harmony and people caring about one another. Instead, the end result of their influence causes the exact opposite. You know, let me just say this morning, by way of love, a great way to determine if you should ever remain under anyone's spiritual and pastoral influence is just look at the atmosphere among the people that they minister to. Just look at the atmosphere of the people that they minister to. Is it a healthy, loving family of believers where there's stability, where there's peacefulness, and people care about one another? Or is the influence of the people that are under their ministry influence much like a family that has fallen apart at the seams, where basically the nature and atmosphere of the family, there is a history of a household in that church that is marked by anger and arguing and division and questions and constant friction and continuous suspicion. That should be a real clear sign you might want to find a different household. And so Paul says here, look, these are very clear things from which we can identify that are going on. He says the problem with such individuals going on, verse 5, is these are men, he calls them, of corrupt minds. The idea is their thinking 
is polluted, their mind is defiled in its ideas, something, again, can't always quantify exactly what it is, I'm sure there's variation, but Paul says something has corrupted their mind where they don't operate correctly in their view and choices. So their perspective is distorted. He says the problem as well is they are destitute, lacking without the truth. In other words, they've been operating without the truth as their guidepost. And because of that, what's now happened is they've spent such a long time being influenced by error, whether it's the blindness of their own pride, whether it's lacking being directed by truth and having lived for so long in error, believing lies for so long themselves and not wanting to see the truth that they've, if you would, kind of lost connection with what's true anymore. It's almost as if they lost connection with reality and they can't even see it clearly anymore. And they've lost connection with what is true because they've been so inundated with error. They're a blinded and deceived individual and they're the blind, which is scary, perhaps leading the blind. And even Jesus cautioned about that with the Pharisees, that the blind leading the blind. And look what he says about them finally in verse 5 as he concludes. He says, these are such individuals, the last thing he says, verse 5, about them, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they view acting godly and they view pretending to be godly or using the things of God, however it comes to pass, as a way to gain things for themselves. They use the things of God, they act godly outwardly as a way, he says, a means to gain things for themselves. And look, sometimes that may be to gain a following or to gain a crowd, to gratify some perverse psychological need to feel important. And that's a distorted need inside all of us from time to time to just want to feel important, to want to seem special. Some people just like being in charge of people. They love authority. And, and, and he says, so some people, they may use the things of God to just gain a crowd, to gain a following, to have a larger customer base, to appear and to feel successful and to meet some need within themselves or maintain some image using the things of God to do such or perhaps just as bad, or who knows, maybe even worse, they suppose that the things of God and acting godly is a means of gain financially. That is to enrich themselves and to take advantage to increase wealth through spiritual and religious work. Philip said, these are those who hope to make some profit utilizing Christianity. And sadly, there are those who would do such and have always done such, and God, look, God knows the perversity of the human heart. He knows that there is a propensity that some will do this using a spiritual image or the things of God or spiritual activity or work just for selfish gain. They're not really interested in making personal sacrifices like our Lord to help and serve people, but instead in their perversity within, they are using selfish and corrupt ways to use the things of God to just gain what they want, whatever that may be. And look, folks, the reality is, and it's why God's word addresses it, there are always going to be some who are nothing more really than just spiritual salesmen. And there are some as well who are also spiritual showmen. And both exist. And so the Bible says, if you identify those unhealthy signs, God gives it to us right here in his word, 
It's not an issue of, oh, I feel so critical. I feel so critical. Look what God says at the end of verse 5. From such people, you see it? What does he say? It's in your Bible. Look at your Bible. You said it. I didn't see that. Withdraw yourself. If you see these things, if you identify those things, God says, look, oh, but all my friends are here. I'm so emotionally connected here. God says, get away. Just detach yourself. You don't have to play the Holy Spirit think you're going to fix them. You don't have to stay there and become just as cancerous because you're always... God just says, detach. Move on. Just withdraw yourself. Let God deal with such individuals. He says, you just withdraw yourself, get away, and don't follow or listen to such individuals. Draw back and ask the Lord to guide you to move on to where a healthier place for you and I to be. Now, it seems as Paul talks about these things, it's almost as if the Holy Spirit maybe prompts his mind here to think about true godliness. He says there are some in a sick way that use godliness as a means to gain, and it's almost as if at this point Paul's prompted to think about true godliness and the reality of how money can have an effect upon all of our lives to a degree. So therefore, in light of that, he goes on, verse 6, to say, now godliness with contentment he says, that is great gain. That is something that is a good thing to want to gain. Sincerely seeking and embracing godliness in our life is one of the greatest gains, the Bible says, that any person can ever experience. It's one of the best advancements in human life that a person can ever attain. Though pretending godliness is a disgraceful method for acquiring financial gain or gaining a crowd. He says, pursuing God to let his spirit really work in our life as we seek him and worship him to help us experience a greater degree of godliness. Paul says, that's a wonderful pursuit. That is actually one of, he says, the healthiest and greatest things any person could ever gain. Remember, Paul said in this same letter just a little ways back in our study, he actually said to Timothy, exercise yourself toward godliness. The Greeks literally, gymnasio, that is, put time into the spiritual gym. In other words, he was saying, whatever you got to do in discipline and practical efforts to exercise yourself to become more godly, he says, that's a great thing. Put in the time. Don't think spiritual health comes automatically. You got to exercise yourself just like you'd exercise your physical body but he says that's one of the greatest gains any person could ever attain in this life. To become more like God, to know God better, to become a godly man, a godly woman. And more than that, he says, to become content and satisfied with that singular life attainment. To be satisfied and content as a truly wealthy person who says, you know what, I've attained godliness or I'm seeking to obtain godliness and with such I can find contentment in that. You know, Jesus himself said, the truly wealthy people in this life, he said, those who are rich in God. What a beautiful picture. Rich in God. You know, that word contentment that Paul uses there in the Greek, it speaks of an inner sufficiency, what we might call being satisfied or fulfilled. So it's that internal testimony inside of us that is saying, I have enough as it is. And therefore, I don't need more, or I don't need different. I have God. And what I'm experiencing, God, 
is an inner sufficiency, and what a wonderful blessing the godly person alone on this planet understands that it is truly possible to find contentment in an experience with God, in an encounter with God, and to be able to enjoy that reality. Again, contentment is defined as that state of being satisfied with one's possessions, one's status, and one's situation. Good thing to ask ourselves from time to time. Does that describe us this morning? Can we genuinely say that's where we're at in our Christian walk? He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That's how you know you're gaining. That's how you know you're getting ahead. And I think to some degree, when you look at the connection there, He's implying that to the degree that times we may struggle with discontentment with our financial status or our position in life, whatever it may be, when we find ourselves not satisfied, striving, always craving more, he says perhaps that's an indication of disconnection regarding our relationship with God. Because he said godliness with contentment, you're getting somewhere. It seems the opposite would be true as well, that if we're not content, Part of the reason we're not content is perhaps we've disconnected from the sufficiency that God wants to be giving to us from himself in our lives. You know, the reality is we all know, there, the Bible teaches there is this, this inner, we might call it a vacuum or a void in all of our lives that we're created with that only God can satisfy, only God can fulfill. And God, Acts 17, tells us the place that we were born and where we're at and our life circumstances, everything in our life, circumstantially, God has sovereignly been using from our birth all the way through our life to bring us to a place to get us to seek God, to get us to realize that we need God, and to cause us to come to that place where we recognize the only thing that's going to satisfy me truly and fully as an individual is God alone, and to get us to recognize that. And the struggle is, is that we spend so much time in our lives trying to fill that inner void, right? Who didn't do that before they became a Christian? Who doesn't make the mistake at times of maybe you gravitate back to that and and you're wondering and recognizing, well, this doesn't work and that doesn't work. And whether it's a relationship or, you know, some, you know, possession or some position or some attainment or some pleasure, and and we try all these things, square pegs and round holes, and we're realizing, why am I still dissatisfied as a person? And that's one of the things that drove many of us to come to the place of realizing we needed God, we needed Jesus, and that we were going to be empty and dissatisfied until we came to that place. But it's it's a thing for a Christian to always remember that godliness with contentment is something that should be the pursuit of the believer. That is the greatest gain on this earth to a degree that we can make. Jesus said, verse uh, Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for he shall be filled. The language is literally, he shall be satisfied. He shall become fulfilled. So often we're struggling in that way. And look, contentment does not come from acquiring more. That is the great lie of humanity. Contentment never, ever comes from requiring or having more or from having the most. True contentment comes from being able to function with the least. See, if having more truly made people be more content, every marketing industry, all the commercials, everything would go out of business because marketing is built on trying to convince you what? You need this. (laughs) 
I mean, whether it was back in the day, you know, Wrigley Spearmint gum, you know, do you, do you, do you want to get the good-looking girl? We just, you know, and, and I mean, they said everything is sold on trying to convince us if you get this, if you have this, the newest model vehicle. Or, I mean, just, I mean, that's what marketing is built on in every arena of commercialism. And the reality is people are getting that stuff and we've gotten some of that stuff and all different, and the reality is none of it fits. It's just that constant cycle that it keeps us going through and the insanity of it. The Bible would teach us contentment doesn't come from having more or even having the most. It actually comes from finally being able to function with the least. And to, in a sense, to say, look, I, I, I can have less and be okay with that. The content person can live with the least and be thankful and satisfied because they are finding fulfillment in God. You know, in a sense, do we want to experience great gain and make that major advancement? Paul would say, pursue God more, because that's where it's found. That's where it's ultimately experienced. When Paul prayed for the Ephesians, interestingly enough, in chapter 3, he said this as he was praying for them. Listen to his words. He said, I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ with passes knowledge. In other words, that they would know this incredible, overwhelming experience of the love of Jesus. And then he concluded saying this. Here's the phrase. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, I don't even know what that is. I can't even explain it, but it sounds good. That you may become filled as you're experiencing God that you may become filled with all the fullness of God. That God, by all of his fullness, would be able to fill our life with all of who he is and what he supplies so that we can enjoy life as a believer. Look, that doesn't mean that we can't enjoy earthly realities. That's not what the Bible's saying. He's going to say in the same chapter, God gives us a few verses later, richly all things to enjoy. This isn't all we can't enjoy earth. That's not what this is about. What God's saying is, is recognize that the main goal of the Christian life on earth is to find fulfillment in God. Because when we transition into eternity, that is what we will be fulfilled with. You do realize that. Do you know what they use gold for in heaven? Paving streets. Oh, gotta get gold, gotta get gold, gotta get gold. In heaven, they pave streets with it. Who in their right mind is out there going, man, look at that asphalt? Man, I wish I could get a chunk of that. See, the value system is different. And so God's trying to prepare us on this side of eternity for this very reality. Look what he goes on to say, verse 7, helping us with this contentment subject. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Well, I mean, that's pretty honest, isn't it? I, he just says it right there. Look, this is the logical reasoning, reminding us the way we begin life and end life is the exact same way. We start life, he says, with absolutely nothing, nothing material. Look, I have watched all three of my daughters be born. I emphasize watched. My wife did all the work. But I watched the process, and I can tell you this, having been the one privileged to watch the process, when all three of my children entered in this world, they came naked, hungry, needy, and they brought nothing to contribute. They weren't born with a purse. They wanted one shortly afterwards. 
They brought nothing. They came in with absolutely nothing. That's how we all start out life. We start with nothing, just our literal existence. And how do we end life? He says, verse 7, we end life by carrying nothing out. As we depart from this world, we take nothing of everything that we acquire our whole life. It all gets left behind. You've heard the old adage before, hey, how much did he leave? Everything. That's how much he left when he died. Everything. Took nothing along. Jesus instructed, that's why the wise believer sends it ahead. You know, if I can illustrate, when we were pastoring the church back in York for the 13 years that we were there, for a number of the years that I was there, I had a little side hustle I was doing on the side as we were trying to keep mom at home and taking care of the girls. And so I, you know, did obviously a lot of funerals. I also served as a police chaplain. So, you know, I perceived and realized part of the process of what happens when someone passes away and so forth. So I reached out to a friend who I got very comfortable with at a funeral home. I did lots of funerals for them. They were in the inner city, did a lot of family funerals and so forth, people even who weren't a part of our church. So I said to him, hey, look, I don't mean to be weird, but I said, you ever need any extra help like when somebody dies once in a while to do the body pickup? Because I realized that's not to be weird, but it is, it's part of the process. And it's one of those things where you can't plan it, right? People don't schedule their deaths. It's one of those you gotta, you kind of got to be on call. It happens. They call two, three people. You go pick up the vehicle. You go to the home. You respectfully go in, and, and, and you do kind of what you have to do, and you, and you do the body removal, right? And so I did that for a few years. I was a part of a group. They, you know, when it happened, they just call around. They, they kind of you know, get two, three guys. You report, and you, you go and take care of that, and they compensate you for doing such. It's kind of just like an on-call type thing. And, and I don't mean this in any way irreverently, but I can tell you this. There was never a time that when we were picking up someone's deceased body that we asked them if they'd like to bring anything along. You bring nothing along. Everything you acquire, you leave. You leave with nothing. And so the Bible is simply saying, look, as you're measuring rod, as you live life, remember the front and the back. You start with nothing, you end with nothing. And so he says, just let that help you process how much the things and the stuff and acquiring more kind of really does matter as you journey through life. And look, these are probably more helpful for the American culture than for any culture of Christians to just remember these very realities. He says, verse 8, having, look what he goes to, food and clothing with these, there our word is again, we shall be content. Again, food and clothing, literally clothing is covering or shelter. The idea is these are the basic necessities of survival, right? Having food that we need, daily nourishment, what's sufficient, and having covering, and look, let's just be very candid. Every one of us here in this room this morning, I would venture it's pretty accurate, especially as Americans, we have much, much, much more than what verse 8 says. I mean, the, do a little research. Even those who are considered poverty level in the United States of America still fall into the top 3% of the wealthiest people on the entire planet. So as Americans, some of this is a little bit, you know, confusing for us. For, for some, food and clothing, that, that, that's the way they daily live. 
But for us who have so much more, again, just so important, the Bible is saying as far as these physical things of life, we should learn to be satisfied with our bodies fed, our bodies covered, because what does that constitute? Think about it. It constitutes needs being met. And truthfully, that is all God's word promises. Our entitlement mentality is what gets us all messed up. And we are raising now younger and younger generations with a way worse entitlement mentality. They're five years old. They don't have an iPhone. I don't have an iPhone. The other kids in kindergarten have an iPhone. I mean, really. I, I say that jokingly, but we, we, some of us as adults, though, we never grow out of that. And we have this entitlement. We think we, and the reality is God has promised to meet our needs. Daily bread, roof over our head, clothes on our back. There are some people, that's how they've lived their whole life. They don't think God doesn't love them. I've met with Christians. I've been on missions trips. Some of you have as well with people who are happy and content and they've got nothing. They're sleeping on dirt floors. They got one change of clothes. They threw a, pieces, a few pieces of aluminum together to make a 10 by 10 structure and six people are living inside of that. And, and they're not saying God must not love me because they understand, they've never had more to, to wrestle with that. They have food. They've got a shelter over their head. And again, so, so important. Hebrews 13 tells us, let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. As a believer, we want to ask the Lord for his help to recognize, Lord, you know what? You've promised the basic necessities and help me, Lord, without striving and struggling and getting off track, Lord, to just let you add to me what you want to add to me. And there's nothing wrong if God adds to your life. It's not the issue. But the idea is that we don't find ourselves struggling. I mean, truth be told, I don't want one more dollar than I can handle. Because he's going to say in the next verses, money gets a lot of people in trouble, right? And so this is why Paul would say in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know how to be in need, and I know how to have plenty. Paul said, I've experienced both. There's been times when I was in difficulty and need, having less and lacking and struggling. And he says, there have been times where I've been prospering and having plenty. And he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. He said, I can be content when I'm struggling, and I can still be content there. It must be a season I'm in. And he said, I can be content when I'm blessed and I'm doing well, and I don't feel bad and guilty about it. And he says, I've just learned that contentment is not in those things, whether well-fed or hungry. And then Paul said, in connection to that, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Interesting, we love to quote that verse. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Do you ever look at the context? I just read it to you. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. What's he talking about? Being content. Just being content. Whatever our circumstances. One man said this, I quote, he said, we have become so glutted with luxuries that we've forgotten how to just enjoy necessities. That's a great statement. He goes on, verse 9, to warn of the greater dangers, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which he says, look at this, drown men in destruction and perdition. So notice, he warns of the danger of being driven by wanting to become wealthy. When he says the desire to be rich, it literally speaks of an inward decision where the motive and the directive is always more money, more money, some way to just get to the next stage. And look, let me just say, 
Being wealthy is not an indication, as I've tried to say earlier, it's not an indication that someone's not spiritual, that they're carnal, or they're not godly. When you study the Bible, there are many godly men in the scriptures who were wealthy and loved the Lord. I mean, Abraham and Jacob and Joseph and David and Job and in the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea. There are plenty of individuals who loved God and God added wealth and they were abundantly blessed with wealth and possessions. It's not unspiritual to be wealthy at all. At the end of the chapter, Paul is going to specifically give instructions to the rich believers in the church in Ephesus, which means there were believers in the church of Ephesus who loved the Lord and some of them had become wealthy. God had blessed them. He had endowed them with wealth. And I can tell you this, personally, I know some wealthy believers who love the Lord and they're solid individuals and they manage their resources in a wonderful way and they're very giving and generous. Paul's going to simply instruct those who are wealthy how to manage that wealth and how to keep a proper perspective with it. And let me just say too, don't ever let yourself develop the wrong idea on the flip side of that, that poverty is spiritual. And that's kind of a pseudo you know, Christian idea sometimes too, that just somehow it's more spiritual to be poor and to be impoverished and that kind of makes you a more godly person in some way. Look, there are, there are people who are carnal people who are rich and there are people who are godly people who are rich and there are people who are godly people who are poor and there are people that are very carnal, wicked people who also are poor at the same time. That's not the issue at the end of the day. In fact, truth be told, sometimes when people are struggling financially, this verse can be a struggle for them too because they're so sick and tired of being poor or having less, they're always driven by just trying to somehow get more money and get rich. And it can become just as big of a problem for the wealthy wanting more as the lacking person to want to get out of that you know, impoverished condition. The desire to be rich just speaks of, as I said, that ambition, that unhealthy ambition where you're always motivated by personal greed to just obtain greater wealth. And he warns what can happen in verse 9 when someone is desiring to be rich. Look what he says. They fall into, look what he says, things like temptation. They're tempted to do things that would not be good whether it's sinful or just foolish or harmful. They get caught into snares, which speak of a trap to entangle, to capture. And look, riches can become a trap in this life. It is times on occasion where people, their wealth doesn't help them. It actually becomes a disservice to them. Or their drive to get more wealth becomes something that actually trips them up and they pursue paths that they shouldn't pursue, or they have such a strong motivation for more money that it becomes their obsession. And he says, verse 9, what happens is they end up falling into, look at it, verse 9, many foolish and harmful lusts. Foolish and harmful lusts. That is a strong desire for more where they have harmful lusts. They begin to make foolish decisions. They have mistaken priorities. They begin to maybe pursue things maybe from a a work or business perspective that are foolish and they get way off the beaten track because they're making foolish choices, lusting and driving after wanting to, again, get a next position or build the business or grow. And, and, And he says they start making foolish decisions. They start caring about things like money more than people, more than their families, more than their marriages. 
And all of a sudden, they're trapped and foolishly missing what matters. And more than that, he says, they can do harmful things, which means they're making decisions that endanger and jeopardize people like their own self, right? Some people who obtain great wealth, they destroy their own health. They kill themselves trying to get more money. On top of that, they don't just harm themselves. Sometimes people harm others around them, making unwise risks maybe to get ahead, you know, working ridiculous amounts of hours just because there's this drive to want to be more wealthy, have a more luxurious life, and they start ignoring what really matters, and they start hurting people, ruining relationships. You know, in our study in Proverbs recently, we just went through Proverbs not too long ago, 23. There it says this in relation to this subject. Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Notice, he doesn't say that it's wrong to work. Proverbs, we've looked a lot about, don't be lazy, don't be lazy, work. Be diligent, be responsible. He says, don't overwork, key, to be rich. Sometimes you may have to work and overwork to pay your bills. Been there, done that. You've been there, done that. Nothing wrong with working and working the overtime or, and if you got to pay bills. He's saying don't overwork just to be more rich. He says if that's what's driving you, be careful. That's not healthy. You know, Jesus, Luke chapter 12, I encourage you to read it, says, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of things that he possesses. That's not what life's about, Jesus said. And then, of course, he tells that parable of the rich man who was prospering and progressing, and, and he says, what am I going to do with all? I got so much stuff, I can't even fit it in all my barns. And remember what the man does? He says, I know. I got to just build bigger barns. Let's tear these down and build a bigger barn so we can fill it with more stuff. And Jesus said to that man, fool, this very night your life's required of you, and all that stuff you just got, Who's going to get it now? And he said that that man was foolish because he wasn't rich toward God. Again, his desire for wealth eclipsed his desire for really the greater wealth, which is the things of God. And I think that's why Paul concludes in verse 10, warning of the danger even to our spiritual life. Look what he says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, from which some having, look what he says, strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. So the greatest danger of human greed, he says, is even damaging or destroying our own spiritual condition. That's a strong warning. Contrary to how many misquote this verse in the Bible, and you know you've all heard it, money's the root of all evil. Money's the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money. Money's not evil. Money's a neutral thing. Money's an instrument. It's a tool. It can be used for great good, or it can be used, as he says, for horrible, destructive, evil things. Money in and of itself is not evil. One man said, you know, money is a wonderful servant, but it's a horrible master. And that's true. Money can serve a lot of wonderful purposes. When it's in the right hands and handled by a person with the right perspective toward that money, Money can be a powerful influence for good, right? People can responsibly pay their bills and take care of their families and then bless their families and, and, and you know, give to missionaries and support the work of the Lord and they can help families that are, I mean, money can be used in lots of wonderful ways. 
helping struggling people, paying someone's bills if they're in a hardship. You know, money can be used in wonderful ways. Now, at the same time, money can be used for tremendous evil if it's in the wrong hands, right? Because money in the same way, the wrong usage of it, can do things like finance drug cartels and terrorism and, and all types of industries like the porn industry and the abortion industry that do horrible things and money can be used in destructive ways, in very evil ways. The issue is the right perspective towards money and whose hands the money is in. And so here, this is the caution. He says, it's that love of money, that unhealthy attachment and greediness where money becomes the primary thing that's important. That, he says, when you love it too much, becomes the root of all kinds of evil. Because that love and greed of money takes root in a heart, and then the things that come out of the heart and the things that are done, the fruit of that ends up causing some really bad things that take place. It becomes the root of lots of evil things. Look what he says. Some people in their pursuit of money have pierced themselves through, he says, with many sorrows. Many people, because they got more money and they love money so much, they have brought tremendous pain and hardship into their life just chasing and loving money. And he says, don't let that happen to you. Don't love it too much. You know, money comes, money goes. In our study in Proverbs, he says, it makes wings and it flies away. You know, I often say, money talks. Mine does and yours says the same thing. Goodbye. That's all it says to you. may say hello quickly on the way in, but it says very loudly goodbye when it needs to, right? And so he says, don't love it too much. And again, the biggest reason, he says, above all else, some, he says, verse 10, have actually strayed, look, it's right there, strayed from the faith in their greediness. Look, the bottom line is, folks, I have watched some very devoted believers in the past who literally have walked away, turned away, drifted away from the Lord, become backslidden, carnal, worldly for one primary motivator. They just love money a little too much. You know, it's why Jesus warned of the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the spiritual life. We have to be very careful in regards to that. You and I both know as well, there are other people in this life, like the rich young ruler, Matthew 19, who refuse to come to Jesus because their biggest obstacle is wealth. And that's a sad thing, that the God of wealth is keeping them from the God of their salvation. And God just cautions us. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits and ruins his own soul? You know, these are great verses, particularly as American Christians, to ask the Lord to search our hearts and say, Lord, how much of a motivator is that in there? And Lord, help me with this as it pertains to my life.